Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 17 Jacob Cooley's Conjure Chest Sometime around 1840, Jacob Cooley, of Frankfort, Kentucky, was expecting his first child. His wife was pregnant, and Jacob had to make sure that his child had all of the necessary items, including a chest of drawers for their bedroom. To this end, he ordered one of his slaves, a furniture maker named Hosea, to build the chest. Though the chest was well-built and quite beautiful, Cooley disliked it, and in a fit of rage, he beat Hosea to death. The other slaves saw this as a punishment too extreme even for this master, and they saw the need to address it. Among the slaves was a conjure man who told the others what to do. They snuck the chest out of the house and brought it to the conjure man's cabin. He then led them in a chanted incantation while sprinkling Al's blood onto one of the chest's drawers. The chest was, thus, cursed. For reasons unclear, but possibly due to the curse itself, Cooley decided to make use of the chest despite his dislike of it, and placed it in his son's room. His son died a few days after birth. From there, a number of people are said to have died after storing goods in the chest. There are a lot of deaths connected to this chest, which are helpfully listed out by the Kentucky Historical Society. Quote, 1. The baby clothes of the child for whom the chest was made were put into the chest. He died in infancy. 2. One of Jacob Cooley's older sons used it for his son. He was stabbed on his 25th birthday by his body servant. 3. The chest was moved to the attic, but was later given to a newly married couple, Melinda and Sean. Melinda got sick and died. 4. Sean was killed in an accident. 5. Their daughter Evelyn and her husband cared for an orphan, Arabella, and later her wedding dress was put in the chest. Her husband died young. 6. The baby clothes of Arabella's child were put into the chest. The child died. 7. Evelyn's oldest son married, and the wedding clothes of his bride were put into the chest. The young woman died. 8. Evelyn's servant, Aunt Sarah, hid gloves and a scarf she knitted as a Christmas gift for her son, I assume this means Evelyn's son, into the chest. He fell through a train trestle two days before Christmas and was killed. 9. Evelyn's daughter, Nora's wedding clothes were put into the chest. Her husband deserted her. 10. Evelyn's daughter, Ruthie, put her childhood clothes in the chest. She was injured and died a cripple. 11. Evelyn, distressed by loss, took her own life. 12. The chest was brought to the house of Virginia Carey Hudson. The clothes of Virginia's first child went into the chest. The baby died. 13. The clothes of Virginia's daughter were put into the chest. She was stricken with infantile paralysis. 14. The wedding clothes of another of Virginia's daughters were put into the chest. Her husband died. 15. Virginia's son Stanley put his hunting clothes into the chest. He was shot. 
16. Virginia's son Robbie put his clothes into the chest. He was stabbed through his hand at school. End quote. In the end, Virginia Hudson, a descendant of Jacob Cooley, inherited the chest and consulted a conjure woman named Annie, who informed her that the following conditions would have to be met for the curse to be lifted. And this is quoting from Fairweather Lewis's blog. Quote, Someone would have to give Mrs. Hudson, unprompted, a stuffed dead owl. A pot filled with leaves from a willow tree would have to be boiled from sunrise to sunset with the owl sitting nearby. And then the liquor, fluid containing chemicals from the plant, off of the boiled willow would have to be poured into a jug and the jug buried under a flowering bush with the jug's handle facing east towards the morning sun. End quote. Well, shortly afterwards, someone sent Mrs. Hudson's son a stuffed owl, completely unprompted. What are the odds? And she and Annie carried out the rest of the ritual. Annie told Mrs. Hudson that, if one of them died, then they would be the last victim and the curse would be lifted. Annie died shortly afterwards, making her the 17th and last victim of the curse. The chest was donated to the Kentucky Historical Society at some point between 1976 and 1980. The catalog number available from the Society's website indicates 1980 if it's a system I've used before, but if it's a different system, it may be from a different date. It is claimed by some that the Kentucky Historical Society has placed a talisman consisting of the feathers of an owl in the chest drawer in which the owl's blood is said to have been sprinkled nearly two centuries ago. Commentary The original source for this story appears to be a book of short stories and reminiscences titled Flapdoodle, Trust, and Obey by Virginia Hudson. The book will be listed in the sources for this episode, which you can find at kmmamedia.com, but at this time I was unable to find a copy that was not rather expensive, so I've had to work from newspaper accounts and online summaries and reprinted portions for my discussion. Before I get into the things that I think are interesting here, I'd like to make a quick point. Many of the images you see online, if you go looking, show a chest, not a chest of drawers. A chest of drawers is an antiquated term for what we would typically call a dresser now. The Kentucky Historical Society has made photos of the actual object available online, and one will be on this episode's blog post on the show's website. There are many ways for this story to be interpreted. One is simply as a modern story, shared amongst those of us for whom American chattel slavery is a thing long gone, so this creepy story may be intended to be nothing more than a creepy story with an antebellum context. However, given that the effects of American slavery and Jim Crow laws still linger in the United States, this reading rings false. Another way to interpret the story is as a narrative about the anxieties of people whose high position in society is dependent on keeping others in a subservient position. In this reading, the slaves are not seen as weak because they have the potential to lash out if provoked. This both justifies keeping the lower classes away from any source of power and influence, and acts as a cautionary tale about how far those subservient classes can be mistreated without reprisal. These two contradictory meanings, we must keep people down, but don't try to keep them down too hard or you will get a backlash, can be found in stories touching on slavery from ancient Rome to the American South. 
and the themes continue to be read in stories from people who have opposed the labor movement in the 20th century and those who support modern Jim Crow policies. Echoes of these ideas can be found in the rhetoric of those who fear migrant laborers in the U.S. and Europe today, as well as most parts of the world where workers are coming in from the outside. Those we wish to look down upon are seen simultaneously as primitive or otherwise lacking, but also as a very real and severe threat. Another reading is that the story speaks to the sense of collective guilt among many white Americans who see slavery as an evil, and an evil that white Americans still benefit from even a century and a half after it ended, whether we will admit to it or not. In such a story, we can place the guilt for the institution on individuals of the past, such as Jacob Cooley, and use this story to make Cooley symbolically pay for the original sin of American society. If you think that sounds like too much, I will simply remind you that these sorts of symbolic sacrifices are the basis of many religions. Indeed, Virginia Hudson was specific in her book that she wanted to put forward her Christian religious views. Symbolic sacrifice is a central theme in Christianity, meaning that there likely would have been some resonance. Symbolic sacrifice is also a common way that humans have processed feelings about guilt and the need to pay for past crimes and violence. In casting Cooley as a horrible man, and not a benevolent one, it also lets us put a distance, whether real or fictional, between us and the people who perpetuated slavery. We can say, this man was a vile murderer, nothing like me. If I were born into that society, I wouldn't have been a slave owner, clearly, because I'm not that kind of person. I'd never beat someone to death. It's a way to ignore that these people were as human as we are. For the most part, if we had been born into the pre-Civil War South as a white person, we likely would have been very much like Cooley, or, at the very least, not have found his actions too far outside the norm. That is an uncomfortable truth that we can ignore with stories like this one that allow us to not only sacrifice Mr. Cooley and his family, aka others like him, for the sins that we benefit from, it also allows us to dehumanize him and pretend that the differences between us and him are due to something other than the circumstances of when and where we were born. Another interpretation is that this is a resistance narrative. The slaves are subservient, downtrodden, and literally the property of others. But they are not powerless. They have access to magic and supernatural power that is not available to the white masters. They may be in a low place, but they won't remain there, and when pushed, they have the means to push back that the masters cannot even understand, let alone protect against. Again, such stories are not uncommon throughout human history and can serve as a comfort for people in an underclass, even when the stories are about another time and place. Of course, the stories of the, in quotes, unlettered, usually underclass, people of a society having magical powers, is also often couched in specifically racist terms. So even the resistance narrative contains elements that are used to cast those at the bottom of the social order as dangerous and irrational. As the magic is inherently scary and can harm, but is also to a degree dismissed by people who see themselves as more enlightened, usually because they occupy a higher place in the social pecking order. Indeed, many popular accounts of African American folk magic from the late 19th and early 20th century both portray it as irrational superstition not worthy of consideration and contradictorily, as a threat that should cause you fear. This is a double-edged way of looking at people, and it can both grant and diminish power. There are, no doubt, many other ways you can interpret this, and none of these readings are mutually exclusive. 
They are all available simultaneously, and new readings are likely to be created as needed, as is common with folklore. Now something that I think is important to note. The curse began with a white slave owner beating his slave to death, and then ends with an unrelated black woman descended from slaves dying as the curse's final victim. This woman is literally sacrificed to redeem the descendants of a man said to have killed a slave. I can't not think of that. It's too glaring and tragic to ignore. Now, this could be read as one last innocent victim of the consequences of Cooley's temper, but it seems significant that the last victim is not white and not one of Cooley's descendants, which would seem like an excellent piece of poetic justice. To a degree, the nature of the narrative demands this. If a Cooley descendant was to write the tale of the item, then a Cooley descendant had to survive. And assuming that Mrs. Hudson truly believed the tale and wasn't just telling a tall tale, and I'm not convinced she wasn't just telling a tall tale, then it seems unlikely that she would invent a family death for this purpose rather than utilize another death. But whether Virginia Hudson was telling a true tale or not, this story isn't passed on because of any truth it holds, but because it strikes a chord with listeners. Within the U.S., the racial politics of our nation, which descended directly from the Civil War and the institution of chattel slavery before that, color most aspects of our daily lives, whether we recognize them or not. So it's inevitable that a ghost story that relates to slave owners and enslaved people will be saturated with a political and social history that still permeates our society. And so the idea that a magical woman of African descent dies to free the descendants of wealthy slave owners from the consequences of their ancestors' actions, uh, it seems quite relevant to a modern world where the long-term effects of post-slavery policies intended to keep former slaves in their place, Jim Crow, redlining, sundown towns, voter suppression, the list goes on, results in the descendants of enslaved people still being at a disadvantage and often having their welfare sacrificed for the benefit of others with little advantage to themselves or to their families. Annie's death is a bitter ending to a bitter tale, but is also symbolically connected to an ongoing story in which some groups in the U.S. are considered essentially disposable, but are still expected to serve others. The author, Colin Dickey, in his book Ghostland, has noted that the supernatural stories that addressed slavery or enslaved people in the American South often serve to negotiate the way that the teller wishes to confront race in the here and now and cope with, or in some cases ignore, history. In a similar vein, this story can work equally well to express the frustration and anger of people who identify with a murdered slave or with Annie, and to express the obliviousness or entitlement of anyone who sees Annie's death as being incidental to the removal of the curse. Either way, it can't really be separated from American racial politics, as it inevitably reflects those politics. The story serves to discuss the history and current realities of race and racism without referring to a specific recent incident or policy that is in the news in the here and now, and as such, the story allows a lot to be expressed without directly confronting immediate matters. Sociologists Dennis Waskell and Mark Eaton have written about how supernatural stories like this can also serve as a warning about the evils of institutions such as slavery and racism. In a sense, the death of Annie can symbolize and epitomize the long-term effects of slavery that are still killing people today. In that light, the white woman surviving could be seen as a comment on how the long-term effects of slavery are still harming non-white people. And Annie's unfair death 
may be the entire point of the story. Finally, I think it's worth considering some ideas that the scholar Inasa Crockett brings up in her discussion of the place of voodoo in New Orleans tourism. Ms. Crockett points out that while the African-American community of New Orleans has a prominent role in the portrayal of voodoo in modern media and tourist material, that has not historically been the case. Prior to the 1980s, and to a large degree prior to the 1990s, portrayals of voodoo were largely done in a manner intended to provide a thrill and or a sense of superiority for the white audiences. In these portrayals, African-American religious and folk magic traditions were portrayed as primitive, of the jungle, and dangerous to white people. This story, written down in the 1960s, has the look of the same sort of thing, whether that is what the author desired or not. Kentucky is not Louisiana, and folk magic is not the same thing as voodoo, but there do seem to be some similar trends at work. I am generally aware of a similar dynamic in the folklore of other places where there is a history of one group being an underclass or lower class, whether by law or custom, but it's a dynamic I didn't really consider carefully until recently. Going forward, I think that this is an aspect of these stories that I will have to be mindful of. As I've said in previous episodes and tried to demonstrate in this one, these are so often more than just spooky tales, but are stories that, intentionally or not, reflect the culture and history in which they are both born and transmitted. How a ghost story can reflect race and class dynamics and politics is something that bears further exploration, and is a subject that I'm going to have to examine more in the future as I look at other American ghost stories. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghostthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky!